I wonder who the hardest person is in your family to buy Christmas presents for. Uh, For me, it's my dad. Uh, He's got interests. It's not like he's uninterested in things. He he likes theology. He likes fixing things. He likes watching movies, historical movies. But he just buys whatever he needs, Uh, whether it's Christian books or gadgets or tools from Bunnings. So whenever I find something that I think he'd like, I find out he's already got it. It's the age-old problem at Christmas. What do you give the man who has everything? A few Christmases ago, I bought uh, my dad a book, Going the Distance by Peter Brain. It's a book about how to last the distance in a lifetime of ministry. And uh, over the few days following Christmas, we both started reading it. And it wasn't until Dad had actually finished it that he went into his study and found he'd bought the same book himself a few weeks earlier, but forgotten. So I ended up with Dad's copy. It's a good book. (laughs) What do you give the man who has everything? I want to take a moment, though, to consider a much more important question about the man who really does have everything. That's Jesus. And ask the question, what are we meant to give him for Christmas? After all, we're celebrating his birthday, so it makes sense to ask, what can we give Jesus for Christmas? Because according to the passage we've just read, Jesus Christ is the man who has everything. It's the point that's made in verse 9. The verse before verse 9 begins the idea, Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross, but that was just the beginning. Verse 9 says this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. Position and title. Highest place, top spot, but also the best reputation, the greatest name. He's got it all. He's at the Father's right hand. He's reporting to no one else. He's the king of the universe. Which is quite different, I think, to the way most people think about Jesus now. Most people would say, if they believe in Jesus at all, that when he died, his body was sealed in a tomb and that was that. For most people, verse 8 is the end of the story. Death on a cross. Most people see Jesus as a historic relic. Sure, a great moral example to follow, a philosophy to follow, but personally irrelevant. Jesus was no different to lots of other great men and women of history who are now dead. But that's not the way the Bible describes what happened after Jesus' death. Verse 9 describes a beginning rather than an end. Not defeated in a hole in the ground, but exalted to the highest place. A crown, not a coffin. A throne, not a tomb. There is no one who compares. No one whose title or power can measure up. No president or queen or sportsman or major general or CEO or scientist or philosopher, living or dead, he's above them all. Even in the spiritual realm, there's no one who can compare to him. Spirits, angels, heavenly beings demons, Satan himself. God raised him from the dead, restored him to heaven and seated him on a throne, ruling the universe. Jesus really is the man who has everything. But perhaps it's worth asking, how do you get a job like that? How do you get that promotion? 
What do you need to do to be appointed to that position? Well, did you notice how verse 9 begins? Therefore. Therefore God exalted him. So so what did Jesus do to receive those gifts, uh, that name and that status? Well, it certainly wasn't the way that most promotions normally work. Uh, The Celebrity Apprentice. It's a TV show about a group of ambitious B-grade celebrities who will do anything to win the title of Celebrity Apprentice and hundreds of thousands of dollars for their favourite charity. Apparently, it makes good ratings to watch them backbite and undermine and outperform each other, ruthlessly treading on their competitors as they climb, making themselves look good compared to their competitors. It's not that much different from the career strategy of most people. But this passage, beginning at verse 6, turns that thinking on its head because Jesus has got to the top spot not by his ruthlessness but, but by his humble service. In fact, it's because of his humble service, not in spite of it. It's really the essence of the Christmas story. Starting from nothing, humble beginnings. It's kind of an ironic twist. The one who has everything is the one who gave up everything. Instead of grasping at power and privilege, he laid it aside. Jump back to verse 6. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The one who from all eternity was equal with the Father, whose experience was one of privilege and honour and joy, complete and self-sufficient, who was in his very essence God, doesn't cling on to that privilege, that position, doesn't selfishly guard it, but instead gives it up. He lets go of his advantages and he becomes human. But not just any man, he becomes a servant man, born to a young mother, his first bed and animal feed trough, unrecognised by most. And then he grows up and spends his life wandering around, never building a career, never marrying or having a family, but serving. But it goes further. Let's go down more. Verse 8, not just a servant man, but he humbles himself and becomes obedient to death. But let's go further down. Not just any death, death on a Roman cross. The ultimate symbol of humiliation and shame. And yet it's because of that descent that God raised him and said, sit with me, your name is the name above every name, it's all yours because you achieved the goal, you completed the plan, you were obedient to the end. It's that word therefore at the start of verse 9. Because Jesus became nothing and was obedient to death, therefore God exalts him and gives back it all. The one who was infinitely humbled is now the man who has everything. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. And so we come to the question that we began with. What do you give the man who has everything? After all, he doesn't need anything. There's nothing that we can give Jesus that will complete him. He needs nothing to add to his collection or his accomplishments. 
I'm not talking about a Christmas shopping list or what's left in your wallet or bank account. He owns the universe. So a few gifts or some dollars aren't going to measure up. I'm talking about what would be appropriate, what would be a measure suitable for the most important person in the universe. Sometimes we need a little help working out what gift to give, don't we? Uh, whether it's a list on the fridge or uh, you know, some notes left in uh, certain places where others might find it. Uh, our family does Secret Santa. I don't know whether that's something that uh, you do at, perhaps at work or something. Everyone's allocated a name to buy one gift for. Now, of course, uh, there's a website to help you with that, that these days, uh, to help keep track of it all. It, it randomly assigns each person a name. And there's also something added. If you don't know what to buy, you can actually send an anonymous request to your name. And you can ask them for a wish list, a list of suitable gifts, a little help so you can know what gift to give. Sure, they won't get a surprise, but that's a lot better than just getting socks and undies, isn't it? At least you'll get something you want. So, so what is it that's on Jesus' Christmas list? He's, he actually sent us a message to tell us. Uh, there's an appropriate gift suggestion there in verse 10 and there's another at the start of the passage as well that we'll come back to after that. So Jesus has the name above every name. How do you respond to that? Well, look at verse 10. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do you give the man who has everything? You give him your absolute allegiance. You say, you are the one, I'm bowing my knee. And that means doing things his way rather than yours. He gets to set the direction. He gets to order the priorities. He determines good and bad, right and wrong. You give him yourself. That's the only gift Jesus wants for Christmas. Now, now that's a small scale, personalised way to read that verse, but let's just step back for a moment and recognise the universal, the, the corporate dimension of what this verse is saying. To bow the knee to Jesus, to confess that he alone is Lord, now there's a sense in which each of you can do that now. And, and most of us do. We're, we're Christians. We're Christ followers who bow the knee before Jesus. But most people don't at the moment. Jesus is seated on the, at the highest place, but most people don't recognise him yet. You see, there's a hiddenness to Jesus as king. There's a now and a not yet aspect. But one day he will reveal himself for everyone to see. One day Jesus will return and reveal himself on Judgment Day and everyone will see him uh, as he really is now. And on that day, every person, living or dead, will either willingly or unwillingly bow their knee before Jesus and admit that he is Lord and no one else. And that will be the reality for all eternity. Now, at the moment, only Christians are doing that. Christians are those who've got in on that action early. 
Christians are those who got the special offer early release tickets for that celebration, offering up their lives and their mouths in praise of the one who alone deserves it. Is that something you've done? Is that something that you do? But it's more than just words. Uh, Giving Jesus yourself, it's going to make a practical difference in your life. People will notice when you get serious about bowing the knee before Jesus and confessing his name. What it's going to mean in practical terms are the sorts of attitudes that we saw in verses 1 to 5. In fact, the whole reason Paul even describes what Jesus went through in verses 6 to 11 is because of verses 1 to 5. You see, verses 6 to 11 are the example and the motivation for the instructions in verses 1 to 5. So let's have a look there. Verse 1 begins with the qualifying criteria, who he is addressing. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from love, if any fellowship with the Spirit. Now these are gifts that every Christian has. Uh, The encouragement of being joined to Christ, the comfort of the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That it's disputed, but I'm pretty pretty sure that's what it's describing. There's a couple of other possibilities. But it's saying all Christians are encouraged by being joined to Jesus, they're comforted by the love of God the Father, and they have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Now, if those things are true, and look at verse 2. If those things are true, make my joy complete, says Paul, by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look, only not, to his, should look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to bow the knee to the one who is the master of humility? Well, it begins with mastering humility. What does it mean to bow the knee to the ultimate servant who descended? Well, it means serving others. Mastering humility and serving others means, verse 2, that unity, like-mindedness, will be much easier for God's people because the opinion of other people matters. Because it's all about them rather than being all about you. And verse 3, you'll do nothing out of selfish ambition. Everything is about others first. In humility, you'll consider others of greater worth than yourself. Of more worth, greater worth. And so verse 4, it means you won't only look to your own interests, you'll look to others, uh, the interests of others. That will come naturally. And then, just in case you're not sure what that might look like in practice, there's verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing. He is the method, the model, and the motivation. The method, the model, the motivation. So, can I put that to you as a Christmas challenge, or, or perhaps a New Year's resolution? Jesus is the name above every name, and at the end, every knee will bow before him. 
What do you give the one who has everything? Well, you bow the knee, you give him your life, you dethrone your selfishness and you learn to serve. Learning what it means to actually look to the interests of others, to actually notice them, to notice others. I mean, it's so obvious when you have a need and you wonder why people don't see your need, but how easily do you see the needs of someone else? Look around, take an interest, and then do something. Make helping others your New Year's resolution. Often it's about self-help, isn't it? I'm going to read a book, I'm going to study a course, I'm going to join a gym. But what about make your New Year's resolution to help someone else? Now, next year at church, there'll be plenty of opportunities to do that. Uh, We're losing some people. Uh, There'll be holes for you to step into and help. Hopefully our K-Central Kids Club will operate again. There'll be opportunities to teach Sunday school or teach scripture, to help out in home groups, to serve on a roster, to do practical things like cooking a meal or mowing a lawn. But not just here at church. What about on your street? Be a missionary in your street. Be missional in your street. Notice the needs of your neighbours. Open the curtain and say hello rather than closing the curtains when they walk past. Build a bridge, offer to help, loan a mower, carpool, carry shopping in, collect the mail, wheel their bins in, invite them for a barbecue. It's easy to be driven by selfish ambition, isn't it? Which just looks like I'm in a hurry or I'm impatient. It's much harder in humility to consider others of greater worth than yourself. Their time is more valuable than yours. But in the end, that's exactly what you are called to give to the man who has everything. Yourself. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've seen uh, this picture of Jesus, who is above all, We pray that we might recognise him, recognise him with the eyes of our hearts, but then recognise him with our mouths and our knees as we bow before him and confess that he alone is Lord. And may that look like something in our church and in our lives individually, that he may be honoured by more and more people. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.